Good morning. It's good to see you again. I was here a few weeks ago and got to speak in this service about a, a little bit of our ministry in Prague and who we are and, and, and what we do. I won't uh, bore you with all of those details again, but I'd love to talk to you about it one-on-one -on -one, uh, at any point uh, today. And we also have some uh, information on the table in the lounge about our mission organization called Surge and uh, the various things that we do around the world. But it's great to be able to be here with you again uh, this morning. Uh, we have been in the States, my family and I, now for uh, basically the whole summer. For us, that's July and August. We're getting, we're getting ready to go back to Prague in a week. And uh, like Mark said, we dropped our son off uh, in college uh, successfully, I think, last week. Uh, so far, no major trauma that we're aware of. So four days in college, pretty good. Uh, but when we moved to Prague, uh, just to give you context, we moved in 2005 and he was six months old. And so we moved to Prague with a six month old and a two and a half year old. Uh, we had a third child, our daughter, who is with us today. She's 15. And so uh, we've, we've spent most of our lives overseas, but it's always good to be able to come back to Charlotte and to see our friends and family and supporting churches. So thank you again for all you do for us and letting me be here today um, uh, to preach. So we're looking today at the 10th commandment. Um, I don't know if I'm the expert in coveting and that's why I've been brought in, but uh, here we are and we're finishing up your sermon series on the 10 commandments this summer. And so we're just gonna dive on in and the, the passage is just this one verse, the last commandment from Exodus 20 verse 17 which says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So your sermon series has been called the Ten Commandments, Free to Flourish, God's Gift. And I love that. I love that that's what you have called it because that I think really gets at one of the, the themes you've probably heard a lot this summer, which is the fact that the Ten Commandments are not really designed to be restrictive. That's what they feel like to us. And that's maybe your, your initial reaction. But they're really designed to uh, inspire you, to help you live lives that can flourish when they're used fully and properly. And it makes a lot of sense I think that God ends his list with this one, the one about coveting. It makes sense for a couple of reasons. One, there, there's a progression within the whole series. And so you, you know this, but the first four are the, the vertically aligned ones telling us how to live in relationship to God, how to worship him, how to uh, be satisfied by him. And then the last six are really the, the horizontal ones, how we are therefore supposed to live in relationship to each other and what we are supposed to do because of that vertical alignment. And even within those six horizontal ones, there is a progression. And so you've, you've heard the last few weeks that God tells us things about how we are supposed to, what we're supposed to do. Uh, we're supposed to honor our parents. We're not supposed to uh, murder, commit adultery, not to steal. And then there is the commandment about what not to say. Uh, don't give false testimony, don't lie. And now we come to this last one, which is how God cares about what we think or how we feel not to covet. And so there is this progression along the whole way, which is really showing us how God cares about all of who we are and all of what we do, say, and think and feel. 
And, be, and because this one relates to our mind and, and therefore to our emotions, which we'll see, it's, it's kind of the one that's hard to pick out, right? It, it's hard to pinpoint. You can't necessarily always see it. The other ones are quite clear when you see them happen. This one seems to go a little bit deeper, and, and it could theoretically at least stay hidden. But it also makes sense to finish with this one because in another way, it, it, it kind of completes a circle, we come full circle to the very beginning of how the commandments started and the vertically oriented ones. And let's remember, how did they start? Well, the very first uh, few verses of this chapter started this way, Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And what does God do here? Well, he, first he starts by just simply identifying himself. He tells them that who, is, who he is giving these commandments. He says, I am God. I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of slavery. Okay, keep that word in mind. And then he kind of throws us into the deep end with this very first commandment, short and sweet, you shall have no other gods before me. And that first one just jumps into our, our hearts and our minds. Because God is immediately and deeply concerned with our worship, our desires, our satisfaction, our loyalty. He says, no other gods, just worship me, be satisfied in me, let me be the object of your affection, and then you will flourish. Well, if that's what God cares about, and I imagine you discuss this each week, how all of the commandments really are ultimately pointing to that fact, then it makes sense for this last commandment to be the way that we horizontally, therefore, align with the things that could compete with our satisfaction in God, our loyalty to God, and our desires that may be opposed to God. And so this is, this is where it helps to really understand what does this word covet actually mean. I, I don't think we use this word any other time in English besides talking about the Ten Commandments. At our church in Prague, we uh, have an international church, so we have a lot of people who are not native English speakers, and so it, we sort of have to unpack words like this that are not necessarily very familiar, and so I would definitely have to explain it a little bit further to them. One thing I like to do is to go to the Czech Bible and then Google Translate it back into what the English says, and the Czech Bible simply says, do not envy your neighbor. And I think that gets at some of it. That's not necessarily a full picture of what that word covet means. But another English Bible says it this way. The 10th commandment in this Bible, it says, don't set your heart on anything that is your neighbor's. And I love and hate uh, how it says it that way. Do, don't set your heart on anything that is your neighbor's. Uh, it, it's, I hate it because it's, it, it really speaks to me. It's hard because it really captures that mental and emotional combo of what coveting really is, that we are mentally and emotionally investing in something that is not ours, something that we shouldn't. Uh, if you're looking for a dictionary definition of covet, I think this also helps um, because it says to covet means to desire what belongs to another inordinately or culpably. And those are uh, also two large words, but those qualifying words are actually very important because the idea of desire is just, it's complicated. There are good desires out there. There are many good things that we desire, but when our desires become inordinate, that is out of order, 
or excessive, or when they become culpable, inspiring guilt in us, then even those good things can become ultimate things which turn into bad things. And so our desire then becomes coveting. Or we have a, we, we've set our heart on something, we have an emotional attachment to something that is not ours. It's, it's kind of the difference between saying just simply, I like something, or even I, I want something, and then saying, oh, if only I had that. There's a difference there, right? If only I had this thing, life would be good. If I only had this experience, if only I could take that holiday that everyone seems to be taking on social media these days, if only I could have that, then my family would also be happy, that sort of thing. And so this is why it's not an accident that the original sin in the Garden of Eden was rooted in the sin of coveting. The the serpent knew very well the easiest way to get to us, and that was to exchange good desires for bad ones, disordered ones. Remember, what did the, the serpent say to Adam and Eve about eating the fruit? He said this in Genesis 3, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So from the very beginning, we have been tempted by desires that were out of order, contrary to what was designed for the good of of man and woman. If only we could eat that and be wise like God, then life would be complete. So I think you get the idea. That's what coveting is. That's what it means. And that's kind of the negative sense of the, the commandment in its literal form. But as you've probably talked about this as well, this summer, all of the commandments really have a kind of positive command that go with it as well. And the, the positive side of do not covet would be be content. Be content. And this is a huge gospel issue for all of us because when we are coveting, we are essentially saying that Jesus is not enough for our contentment and that there's something else besides Jesus that we need. And, and we all struggle with this, all of it. I struggle with this. I see other people's things, and I could be having a great day. I could be enjoying everything about my life, but I see something that I don't have, and suddenly I feel like there's, a, there's something missing. I'm like, oh, maybe life could be even better if I had that. And suddenly I, I want that thing or that experience, and my life doesn't suddenly seem as exciting. And it's like a switch. It can happen so fast. I can be completely content one second and then jealous another. And these disordered desires, they really become a form of idolatry and slavery. That that word, again, that God says, I brought you out of slavery. And then when we start to focus so much on these things, they can rule over us. They can consume us. Now, I mentioned we've been here in the States now for two months, and I have to say I think one of the the things that does this really well to capture this is HGTV. And I say that because I try not to watch HGTV when when we're in the States. It's just it, it makes me realize, okay, there's lots of things that I 
want in my life. And HGTV makes me say, oh, if only, if only, if only. Uh, even International House Centers makes me say that. Even though we have a house and we live internationally, I watch that and I still say that. Last week, I just discovered Tiny House Hunters, and I was like, okay, this will work. But even after watching Tiny House Hunters, I said, oh, if only I had a tiny house, then life could be simple. So they have it down to a science. They know how to make you feel this sense that your life is not enough and that you need something else. It feels like, contentment feels like walking on a tightrope at times because it doesn't take much to get us off balance. So what do, we, what do we do? How do we correct this? Well, I think there's a personal side to this, and then there's a corporate side to this as well. But personally, one thing that a bunch of the books that I was looking at this uh, last week or so in preparation for this seem to all say is that contentment is a learned skill. It, it's a discipline. It's something you have to continue to try to work at. Mentally and emotionally, what do I mean? Well, you, before you find yourself saying, if only I had something, you need to regularly, proactively say, Jesus, you're enough. You're enough in my life. You're enough in this situation. And, and the reason why that's important to do as a discipline is because, and you know this, contentment is not about circumstances. Contentment is really about a heart posture. And you, you want the position of your heart to be satisfied and to feel a certain way all the time because your circumstances are always going to change. And so your heart position and posture needs to be, Jesus, you're enough. So that when circumstances do change, you will still feel the same way about Jesus. I, I know a guy in Prague who has uh, had a rather difficult life. That's putting it mildly. And every time uh, he, he comes to our church and every time I see him and ask him, hey, how's it going? I know he's going to tell me, honestly, everything about what's going on in his life, the, the gory details included. But he always finishes saying what's going on by saying, and God is good all the time. God is good all the time. And when I first met him, I started to think, okay, you're just kind of throwing that in there because I'm a pastor and you feel like you need to say that. But as I got to know him, I realized, no, he actually really means that. He actually really believes that. And I bet he wakes up each morning and he probably starts his day by saying that. Because if you look at his life on, on paper, you and I would say, no, your, your life is not that great, actually. But his heart posture is one that is always in a position of acknowledging that God is good for him, despite his circumstances. He is a picture to me of someone who is truly content. So mentally and emotionally, that's just one thing that you can try to do. Practically speaking, what, what can you do? Well, before you hold on to things uh, tightly, let me encourage you to hold on to things differently. Another friend of ours in, in Prague gave, a, I think, a really great illustration of this uh, for me that has stuck with me. And she said, you know, you can hold on to things two different ways. You can hold on to things really, really tightly. This is mine. I got it. Or you can hold on to things open-handedly. You're still holding it, but you're, you're, you're offering it up. And it's in a different position, so you're ready to give something away. And I think that is a, a good picture of what it means to combat uh, coveting by offering. 
So the, the opposite of wanting things that aren't yours are giving things away that already are yours. Uh, I wish I could say that I'm naturally good at this, but one thing that happened to us personally and to our church that sort of forced us to become people who were in that position uh, happened about a year and a half ago. Uh, at the time, we were coming out of COVID and like all of uh, us, all of you, all of the world, we were just experiencing a massive COVID pity party, as I like to say, saying, whoa, is me, life is so hard. Oh, we can't do this, we can't do that, blah, blah, blah. And then about a year and a half ago, as we were coming out of that, uh, a war started two countries away. And suddenly Prague and the Czech Republic was inundated with thousands, so far 400,000 refugees from Ukraine. And these people came to our country, mostly women, grandmoms, uh, little babies. They, they came fleeing for their lives with nothing. And, and we were suddenly forced to stop looking inwardly and had to look outwardly. And I remember one of the first people I met was, was a guy. And it was a guy because uh, he had already been out of the country when the war started. Men were not allowed to leave Ukraine when the war started. But this guy had been taking a holiday with his girlfriend. The first time he had ever left his country was like a day or two before the war started and he had saved up enough money for, he, for him and his girlfriend to go to Dubai. And he showed up at this hostel where we were meeting these refugees wearing flip-flops, bathing suit, and a tank top. And it was March, it was the beginning of March. That's an important detail. <laughs> It was freezing, and he only had beach clothes with him. And we're sitting down, having some food that, that our friends had brought. And I was like, you know what? I, I have a lot of stuff, and this guy doesn't have much of anything right now. And we suddenly realized as a church, we have been blessed with so much. And, and you know, I think our women and women's ministry did an amazing job of collecting things, of providing food. But this sort of almost forced posture of mercy, of looking outwardly, helped us realize, you know what, we're actually pretty content when it comes down to it. And so that discipline of holding things loosely and even giving things away is part of cultivating this, this idea of contentment. So that's personally but there's also a, a communal aspect to contentment that comes from this commandment. And even though on the surface it might not sound like it, it might be tempting to say, well, coveting, it really is just a personal issue. It doesn't affect others like the other commandments do. But that's, that's not true. The, the internal strife that we feel when we covet really has an external effect on our community. And you, you can imagine this. You can think about this. Imagine a single girl who is, is bitter when her friend starts dating someone instead of being able to be happy for them. And then that, that person withdraws and wallows in self-pity. Or uh, imagine your friends who move into a larger, nicer house, and instead of appreciating it with them, you despise them because you've worked really hard your life and maybe just as hard as them, and you deserve a nice home too. It's a communal thing because coveting is often pricked by comparison, which turns our desires against people. So 
someone has something we want, we hate them. And it works the other way. You might have something that we know others want and it's tempting to maybe lord it over them or use it to your advantage. But someone said something to me seven years ago that has stuck with me and it was a a single missionary colleague of mine, a woman, and she said, comparison kills community. Comparison kills community. And that, that really stuck with me. But it's interesting who said this and when she said it. So this was a single woman who had uh, been serving in Africa for almost 10 years, and she said it to all of the surge missionaries at our missions conference seven years ago. And so here we have this group of professional Christians and missionaries you know, who you would imagine have made different life choices that you would think mean that they're immune to the challenges and temptations of coveting, and that would be horribly wrong. We are some of the worst when it comes to coveting. And you get a global missions conference together every three or four years where we're supposed to get to know each other. It can easily turn into a coveting and competition conference. So, oh, you're a medical missionary in Africa who has saved hundreds of lives and literally restored sight to blind people? Wow. I wish I could say that. Oh, your missionary team is having some amazing prayer and worship meetings together and getting along really well? That's great. (laughs) I wish my team was like that. Oh, your church plant actually grew during COVID and you're seeing dozens of nationals come to faith in Christ? I wish I could say that. Now, that's the tempting part of these conferences. And, And so this woman had to tell us, not to compare. And and for her, she had to add on the the level of being single, being childless, not having any dating prospects in her Ugandan village. And her point was, don't look at what other people have and see the voids in your life because you will become bitter towards them. Instead, look at what people have as these incredible stories of God's grace working in their lives. And so that's become one of the refrains that I've used in our church and in our own life. Comparison can kill community. And and the church, really, as a result, the church should be a comparison-free zone. And, And if I can say it, especially Charlotte churches should be a comparison free zone. Why do I say that? Well, we come back every year, and we used to live here before we lived overseas, and I got to say, it's probably harder in some ways to be a Christian in Charlotte in 2023 than to be a Christian in post-communist, post-Christian, post-atheist Europe where we are. Charlotte's a great place. We love coming here, and it's, and it's beautiful, but it's very beautiful. <laughs> and there's a lot of great stuff here. We, we used to own a house uh, not too far from here in Dilworth, a little bungalow. Uh, and, and guess what? It's gone. <laughs> there's a really nice house there. It's a, it's, I, I'm not surprised we lived in a dump, but it, it's a nice house. But that's, that's a Charlotte thing that is hard. And it's hard to not compare when you live in Charlotte. 
When you come into these doors, into this place, this should be a comparison-free zone. And I think it is, and that's one reason we love coming here so much. When you come into these doors, uh, you are all coming at the same level. We're all at the same place. We are all the same. We are all desperate, broken people with the same need. And so the gospel is really like the great equalizer. And there's really no room for comparison when it comes to the gospel. And that's a great thing. That's a beautiful thing because then you can celebrate with others what God is doing in their life. How can hope be a comparison-free zone? I'll leave you to think about that some more. But one, one way that I know you can do this, and one reason I love coming, and even just the last song we sang, there's something better. There's something better to pursue. And I think you guys do it well, and we're supposed to do this as believers, and that is to pursue deeper desires. I think the best remedy to a spirit of coveting, not just you know, avoiding comparison and giving yourself away and not setting your heart on others' things. I think the best remedy is to pursue deeper desires. In other words, be zealous for the things of God, the things that he tells us to relentlessly pursue instead of being jealous of the things that he doesn't. Uh, Jen Wilkins' chapter in her book, on the Ten Commandments called Ten Words to Live By, and I know that's a book that your, your pastors have been looking at this summer. Her chapter on uh, this commandment is so good, and it reminded me that the, the kingdom of heaven is described in certain ways by Jesus that reminds us that it is, it is the thing that we're supposed to be zealous about. Our emotions should be jealous to the kingdom of God more than anything else. This is how Jesus describes the kingdom of God in a couple of short parables from Matthew 13. He said this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. You see how zealous the person is in that parable, in those parables? They sell all that they have. They, they, they sold all of their belongings to get the one thing, the one thing that truly mattered, the one thing that was worth it, the kingdom, life and joy in God's family. And that is worth something. That is worth more than anything at all. And that should be what we pursue and desire. And it is worth it to give up stuff in order to relentlessly pursue life in the kingdom, to pursue Jesus. The way Paul talks about this in his letters, he, he talks about contentment a few ways, but he uses a couple of uh, interesting phrases that I just wanna, want us to look at briefly. Because in Philippians, he talks about being content in all things, again, going beyond circumstances. Paul says this in Philippians 4, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
I love Philippians 4.13. I have misapplied that verse just as much as everybody else. It's not about being able to accomplish anything you put your mind to, whether it's running a race or whatever. It, It has to do with contentment. I can do all things. I can be content in all circumstances through Christ. And the reason we know he's talking about this is the word he uses for contentment here, he only uses two other places. One other place he uses this word, he doesn't say contentment. He says something else, and it's in 2 Corinthians 9. Paul says it this way. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, here it is, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Paul uses that same word, but he says, it says in in our Bible, sufficiency. So there's this beautiful idea that our contentment in Christ is linked to our sufficiency in Christ. It really says self-sufficiency, and he's not saying that we are independent of God, but he's saying that your, your self has changed when you become a Christian. Your entire self has changed. You are not your own. You no longer live. Christ lives in you. And that is where your sufficiency and contentment come from, the fact that you are a new creation in Christ. One writer said it's really soul sufficiency more than self-sufficiency, that your soul is now sufficient. God has given you everything you need. He has supplied every need that you could possibly have through Christ, and you can live a life of contentment. You don't have to be a slave to the things that you own or that you don't own. You don't have to set your heart on other people's things. Wouldn't that be amazing? Doesn't that feel lighter to not worry about that and to not look at your neighbor and compare all the time? Christ enables you to be free from your disordered desires. I put on the uh, front of the bulletin a bit of a quote from this guy named Stephen Altrogi, who wrote a book called The Greener Grass Conspiracy, Finding Contentment on Your Side of the Fence. I love that title. Uh, The full quote is this, we won't be fully satisfied when we get what we want because God loves us and wants us to find our satisfaction in him. He won't allow us to be satisfied. To believe that we'll finally be happy when we get what we want is a lie. That's how much God loves you. He won't let you be satisfied when you get the things that you want. (laughs) Because that's not what you need. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, my same point is really for you if you are a Christian. And that is, wouldn't it be amazing if you didn't have to be jealous? of other people. Imagine just living and not trying to keep up with your neighbors. The beauty of the gospel is that God never said to us, oh, if only you would do this. If only you'd be this way, I would love you. Or if you'd only just be perfect, (laughs) then I would reciprocate. God does not do that. God is jealous with a holy jealousy. The only kind of righteous jealousy out there is God's jealousy of you. 
because that's how much he loves you. And he says, I don't care who you are. What I know is you're a broken sinner and you need a savior. Let me show you. Let me give you that love. Be content in the fact that God's love for you in Christ is sufficient. Let me pray. Lord, thank you that in you we are complete. We can be satisfied. We can truly be content and sufficient all at the same time. Lord, help us. Help us to live this way. Help us to know that you are enough. And we pray that you will help us um, to hold things openly uh, because we have everything we, we could possibly need and desire in you. Thank you, God. Thank you for establishing yourself and letting us be part of your family through Jesus. Thank you for uh, the life that he has given to us, uh, for living the life that we couldn't and dying the death that we deserve so that we might be with you and your family. We thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.